what we're going to try to do this morning is make sure we get that connection because it's the connection of these events that really shows us uh, where Mark is trying to go in this passage. So, Mark chapter 9, and we're going to pick it up on the 30th verse. And from there they went out and began to go through Galilee, for he was unwilling for anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand the statement, and they were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which was the greatest. And sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all, servant of all. And taking a child, he set them before them. Taking him in his arms, he said, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Father, we thank you for your word this morning as we look to it. Father, our heart's cry is to hear from you. Father, our our need is to see Christ in your word and through your word manifested in all. That's our need, Lord. So we look to you, Father, to do that by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So we start with Jesus and the disciples on the road through Galilee, headed to Capernaum. Jesus telling the disciples about his coming death and resurrection. And then somewhere in that same walk, that same hike, journey, uh, we have uh, the disciples discussing their relative rank within the group, right? Then we have Jesus and the disciples entering a house in Capernaum where he first asks them about that conversation and then brings a child into their midst to respond to that conversation. And again, all of these these different things are connected. And in that connection, we find a message about our Lord. So this morning, let's look at each of those events, try and identify the connection, which I think becomes pretty clear. Then we can draw our conclusions, discuss the application. So first... The event starts on the road. You know, it's amazing how many really important conversations happen on the road. You know, long drives with your kids or your parents or your family or long hikes with your friends. It's amazing. Really important stuff can get discussed on the road, and that's what happens here. So Jesus and his disciples are walking, again, through Galilee. We've been, we've been tracking this now. Uh, Jesus has been on the road a lot, trying to get alone time with the disciples, trying to really focus in on them, and this is just continuing. Uh, And as they're on the road by themselves, trying for some downtime, Jesus begins to explain now very clearly. It's like each time he explains this, it gets more and more bold, right? And this is what's going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed. But then I'm going to rise again. And um, the disciples, they're just not getting it, right? He said he's explained this more than once now. And the disciples, it's, just, it's not connecting for them at all, which takes us right back. We, we tend to wonder about these guys, how slow can they be, right? He's said this several times. But it takes us right back to that whole conversation with Peter, where Jesus said to Peter, right after Peter said, Thou art the Christ, and then Jesus explained what that meant, and Peter tried to correct Jesus that that wasn't right, and J- Peter, Jesus said what to Peter? You're setting your minds not on the things of God, but on the things of man. And we talked about that word phroneo, which is not the way we think, but the basis from which we think. The assumptions, the values, the things that kind of 
create the foundation from which our rational processes move forward. And Jesus telling Peter, you're starting from the wrong place. Well, now we see really the whole apostolic band is there. They've simply got the wrong view of what the Messiah is. Their assumptions about who the Christ is, who the Messiah is, and what's getting, they're wrong. They've got the wrong assumptions. And so when Jesus tells them, yep, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to rise again, none of that makes any sense. No matter how much they think about it, it's just not making sense because they're operating from a wrong set of assumptions, wrong ideas about the Messiah. So this is all tracking pretty consistently, right? Verses 33 and 34, they enter a home in Capernaum, and two really critical things happen. First, Jesus asks them about the conversation they were having on the road. Now, we don't know about that second conversation. The first one was Jesus saying he's going to go to Jerusalem and die. The second one was the apostles, disciples rather, discussing their relative rank. We don't know about that until we get into the house, because that's where Jesus asks them about their conversation. This conversation they were having, which was the greatest. And it's a really interesting conversation. The terminology that, that Mark uses to describe this, that the disciples were discussing, arguing, if you will, who was the greatest. And the word that Mark uses to describe that, it may have been a word that came up in the disciples' own conversation, was mizon. Mizon means greater. It's a, a relative or a comparative term of the word megas. This is the comparative form of megas. And megas is a word that we know in English, right? The word megas or mega, it comes into English any number of ways. In fact, in the Scrabble Dictionary, how's that for a theological source? In the Scrabble Dictionary, you will find that the word mega is used in 508 English words. I'm sure my mother-in-law knew them all. She was a Scrabble fiend. In fact, in fact, if you have any Scrabble fans here, write this down, write this down. Of the 508 words that mega occurs in in English, three of them are 15-letter words. So if you're playing and you score that M-E-G-A, just hang on to it for a while, you know. See what somebody else puts down. You can grab that triple word score. End the game right there, right? 508 times, you know, words like megaphone, big voice. We know these words, right? Well, the thing is... It's one thing to be big, to be significant, to be valued, to be important. It's another thing entirely to want to be the biggest, the bigger. So that word mizon, the comparative word, is, is, is pretty important because that's what the disciples are talking about. They're making comparisons. And that's what Jesus asked them about. So what are you guys talking about on the road? And, and I think it's so fascinating uh, this is kind of an aside to the main point of the text, but I think it's, it's important, especially for those who are in positions of leadership. The way Jesus handled this, he didn't just like land in the middle of their conversation on the road, like, what are you fools talking about? What do you mean, who's the biggest? Right? He lets them finish their conversation on the road. And then when they're in the house, he says, what were you talking about? And, you know, you're free to draw your own conclusions because the text doesn't tell us. But I have the sense that Jesus, you know, like gave them enough rope to hang themselves, right? You let them carry the argument out far enough and long enough, and an argument like this, it's going to be self-evident. You had no business even talking about it, right? So he lets them finish the argument, then they get in the house, and he says, what were you guys talking about? And nobody answers, which is evidence that they knew they shouldn't have been talking about it, right? 
the disciples are overtaken by a you know, condition of speechlessness. And um, the Bible makes it pretty clear that this whole issue of, of comparison is, is just not something you know, we should be interested in. Jesus has already made it clear that every man, woman, and child is equally valued, is equally important. I don't know if you ever thought about you know, the parable of the lost sheep. You know, you got the hundred sheep, and the one goes missing, and the shepherd goes after the one sheep. It doesn't say anything at all about the sheep. It wasn't like, oh, my God, that was my fattest sheep. Or, oh, my word, that was my wooliest sheep. I better go get it. It didn't say anything. It's just a sheep. A sheep got lost. So he leaves the 99 and goes for the one. They're all the same. Sheep equal value, right? You get later in the New Testament, um, you've got Paul talking in 2 Corinthians 10, 12 about those who compare themselves one to another are without understanding. That's a polite way of saying something else. Um, Judges, chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, James, or rather, James. James talks about those who compare people one with another. Do so with evil motives. That's a little more direct. Just this idea of judging and ranking and evaluating and comparing, it's, it's not a good exercise, right? It's the very kind of proneo, assumption, value system, way of thinking that Jesus was talking about when he told Peter, you got the wrong one. You need to rearrange your value system. You need to change your assumptions, the basis from which you think. And that is so critical for us as Christians to get that because it is so easy we come to Christ and we start, you know, reading our Bibles and hearing Christian teaching and we start thinking about how we should act and what we should do and we're in that process. But if we haven't changed the foundation from which we're thinking, that's really hard to make work because what we're doing will never be consistent with what we actually think and believe in who we are. That foundational change has to take place first. This whole problem with the disciples and their discussion of comparisons was all about being bigger. Verse 35, Jesus sits down. He didn't say any more than that. He just asked them what they were talking about. And he sits down and he calls the 12 together. Notice he calls the 12 together. Don't let that get by you. Jesus has drawn crowds in the thousands. He added up all the people that have followed him over the course of the gospel this far. It's undoubtedly in the tens of thousands. So the tens of thousands that have been following him, this is the 12, right? Now, if you're interested in position and relative importance to be 12, the top 12 out of the tens of thousands, that's pretty good. You know, we're in the top 12. But that's the thing about going down that road of comparing ourselves one to another. It's never satisfied. It's not enough to be one of the 12. I need to know where in the 12 I stand. That's the nature of that kind of thinking. That's where it takes us. And so he says to them, and I'm not, I'm not trying to put words in the, in the Lord's mouth. That would be a very dangerous thing for me to do. But try to express what I think is happening here when I say it's as if Jesus is saying to them, as he brings this child in, we're going to work on your freneo. We're going to work on your, your assumptions here, right? And so we're going to bring this child in uh, as an illustration. Before he brings the child in, he says this. He said, if anybody wants to be first, they need to be last. 
If anybody wants to be first, they need to be the servant of all. He doesn't directly address the issue. He doesn't devalue them. He doesn't say, y'all should have known better. How many heard that one a lot growing up? You just should have known better. And, and what does that do to your value system, right? right? Jesus doesn't devalue them, but he brings a child in to correct them. Verse 36 and 37, he takes a child, sets the child before them. The child is exhibit A, if you will, at his point. And he says, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. Whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Exactly what is Jesus saying? How does this child fit into this whole discussion, starting with the disciples on the road? What exactly is Jesus saying? You know, Jesus talked about children a lot. If you know the Gospels, you know that there's a whole lot of scenes of Jesus with children and him talking about children. He said the kingdom of God belonged to children. He talked about receiving the kingdom like a child. He talked about the humility of children, about children who had angels that watched over them, that had direct connection with the father. That's kind of a big deal. Um, about the father not even wanting one child to perish. So Jesus says a lot of things about children, and the, and the problem for us is we tend to like mush those together and not realize that Jesus is saying something different in each one of those. And sometimes he is talking about the child. When he says of a child, unless you have faith like this child, you do not enter the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the child. That child's faith is the point of that lesson. But that's not the case here. The case here isn't the child themselves. It's the attitude toward the child that he's speaking of. Right? If you receive a child like this, you receive not the child but me. And you receive not me but the one who sent me. So it's the attitude toward the child that Jesus is talking about, talking about this, right? It started again with the discussion about Jesus' death on our behalf. It moved on to the disciples' discussion of who is the greatest. Now it's moved forward to this child and Jesus talking about how you receive the child. How do you value the child? Now what's really important for us at this point, again, I said a lot of this whole business of Jesus and little kids has made its way into art. And we start talking about Jesus and little children and take your, our mind goes to the art, right? That's how we see it, right? And that's good because it helps us anchor the idea. But it also has the capacity to distort the picture a little bit and distort the message. Because when you talk about Jesus taking a child and bringing the child in, you know, in his arms, right, you start to get a visual, and that visual is largely influenced by the art, and the art comes from a perspective. Most of that perspective is very Western. Let me ask you this. Think about the pictures you've seen of Jesus with children. What do the kids look like? What is their ethnicity? Almost universally white. Now, actually, that's, that's okay. I'll come back to that in a minute. How are they dressed? Right? What's the general appearance of them? Okay? Now, um, I, don't, I have no problem at all with the fact that in the Christian art that depicts Jesus with children, the kids are almost always white. That's really fine. At first, it used to bug me. Like, come on, they weren't white. They were Middle Eastern. But I learned to appreciate that 
And it's okay. And, and, the, and the way I learned to appreciate that is this Christmas thing we have. We have one of those Christmas carousels. You know, you light the candles and it spins around. It's really cool, right? And it has, it has the, the different characters in the Christmas story in it. It's got the shepherds and the sheep. It's got the wise men. And it's got Mary and Joseph and the baby. And they're all Chinese. They're all Chinese. Now, I don't know if you know this or not. But with the exception of the wise men, who were probably Oriental, none of those characters are supposed to be Chinese. Even the sheep. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how. They, and at first, that used to really bug me. Like, come on, get it right. But then I realized the poor underpaid Chinese worker that did this thing, and I really feel bad about that. Um, when they were doing that, in the act of doing that artwork, didn't that open up the door for them to see themselves in the story? which is actually pretty powerful. So it's really fine, it's really fine by my, you know, by my standards at least, if you want to have a painting of Jesus with kids, if all the kids are one ethnic group that isn't necessarily ethnic group because that allows the children to see themselves in Jesus' arms and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's not what gets me concerned. Here's what gets me concerned and I say this with all the respect in the world for, for Christian art, it's a marvelous tool. But I was going through different, you know, online, going through all these different examples of Jesus and the kids with art, in art. And then I see one, and I think my head's going to explode. <laughs> Seriously. It's Jesus, stereotypical Jesus, dressed the way typical Jesus and art is dressed. Over to his right are a bunch of stereotypical Western American Caucasian well-dressed, all-put-together kids. There's a gap in the middle, and then there's two little boys, and from your perspective, their back is turned to you, very obviously dark-complected. Now we have Middle Easterners, finally! Boom! They aren't wearing anything. But here's the point. The gap between the two groups and Jesus' focus is completely on one group. That ain't cool. Sorry. Not cool. The gap alone expresses something that should not be there, right? And this is the point I'm trying to make. In our understanding of what Jesus is doing here, we are so influenced by our Western value of children that we can completely miss what Mark is trying to say here. When Jesus brought that one child into their midst talking to the disciples about rearranging their value system to get a kingdom of God value system, what did that kid look like? He did not look like a stereotypical 21st century Western European American kid. Right? Over 90% of Palestine in the first century was in poverty. Most, most people living in Palestine were below the poverty level. We're talking about a, a society that is occupied by a foreign power, is taxed to the absolute maximum amount possible. They're paying taxes to Rome. Palestine was heavily occupied by the Romans because it had been a trouble spot for so long. Pilate was not a political governor. He was a military governor, and that was because that area had been such a problem militarily. So it is, it, they're armed to the teeth, heavy military presence, who's paying for it? Roman law said that when they occupied a country, the occupied country paid for it. So Israel is paying for the Roman troops that are staying there. The Jews are paying for the force occupying them. 
Number two, they're paying Herod. Herod Antipas, one of the sons of Herod the Great. And we always said before he's a great builder, all of his sons tried to emulate that. All of his sons tried to build as much as they could to make a big name like that. Who paid for that? And, of course, they're paying a temple tax on top of it. So we're talking about people from very limited resources, very limited income, living a hand-to-mouth existence, taxed by three major powers. There is no middle class. There is no evidence of anything we think of as middle class in Palestine in the first century. You have a very small upper class, and everybody is living a subsistence level. The child that Jesus brought into their midst probably had one piece of clothing. That's just the, the statistical norm. One piece of clothing, an overgarment held by a rope. That's it. Forget shoes or sandals. How well were they kept? That you can you know, make your own judgment on that. This is not a child that looked anything like we would think the child Jesus picked up and carried to himself. More importantly than the child's physical presence is the valuation placed on that child in the first century. In the first century, the word that is used to describe the child that Jesus brought and put on his lap is pedion. Pedi being the modern. Another word that we use a lot, pediatrician, right? Pediatrics, boom, doctor for children. Pedion describes a child. It's from the word pace. Pace is the root that word is drawn from. Now, pace normally would describe a child from the age of 7 to 14, pedion below that. Mark isn't quite as precise in his terminology with that word, so it could have been anywhere in that age group, but the fact that Jesus picked the child up and held him in the arms would suggest that it was probably a smaller child. Here's the point. When pace is used in the New Testament, it's used about, pace or pedion is about 75 times. About a third of those times, it's talking about a child. The other third of those times, it's talking about a slave. And the third in the middle, you can't tell. Because the context doesn't make it clear whether it's a child or a slave. The point is this. A child was seen as not much better than a slave. Even the children of the wealthy, by the way, were not seen as being much better than slaves. In fact, in very many ways, the child of a rich person was less than a slave. The child of a rich person would be entrusted to a slave as a life tutor up till the age of 14. And that is literally a tutor in charge of their life, not 24-7, but 60-60, 24-7. 60 seconds a minute, 60 minutes an hour, 24 hours a day, 7 hours a day. They were under the eye of that tutor, who was usually a slave, under the complete and total control of that slave. That's a, that's a rich kid. And the kids from the larger block of society, the poor ones, were in many cases left to fare the best they could, because they simply weren't valued. The children of the poor typically found themselves doing one of two things. Uh, actually, one thing, they would be trained by father or mother, depending if they were boy or girl, to fill father or mother's slot, whether fishing or carpentry or farming or whatever. That was their first value. They were taught that so that when their parents got old, their parents wouldn't starve. Children were raised, as I said, to do two things. One provide income for parents in their old age, and secondly, to provide continuity of the family, preserve the family name. Raised exclusively, valued exclusively for what they could offer. Children valued exclusively for what they could do for the family. 
totally a matter of function. No value whatsoever attributed to their person. They simply did not have that value. It was a culture. And the Bible doesn't teach that, by the way. The Bible certainly doesn't embrace it. But that's the hand that they were dealt. That was the culture they lived in. Value based exclusively on what they could offer. The whole discussion with the disciples has been about this whole matter of comparison, of value. What makes us value? When Jesus took a child and spoke to the twelve saying, you receive this child, you receive me, it's not based on what the child can do. When Jesus said, you receive this child, you receive me, that's pretty significant. That's got nothing to do with the child's abilities at all. It's the value that Jesus placed on the child. It's evaluation. Jesus is elevating a member of that society who was otherwise seen of as little importance, little significance, and no individual worth at all. Simply a matter of what can you do for me. Which is actually the same thing Jesus did a lot. When he spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well, he was elevating someone that the disciples would have attributed no value to. When he touched the leper, he was elevating in value someone the disciples would have attributed no value to. When he cast out demons from a possessed man at Gadara, somebody the disciples would have thought nothing of. In fact, it's pretty much his pattern. Don't misunderstand. I'm I'm not comparing children to lepers or, or women to lepers or even lepers to lepers. I'm just saying... That the things we look at, at our, at our basis level, the things we look at by which we attribute value to people is not the kingdom way of looking at people. The one with the issue of blood, no value as a human being, and yet Jesus valued her. In the stratification of society, first century society, in the stratification of first century society, the people that got most of Jesus' attention were in the lower strata. But that wasn't the problem. The problem wasn't that they were in the lower strata. The problem was that they had a strata at all. The very existence of a stratified society and the valuations placed it. Now, there's always going to be people that do better than others. There's going to be people that are more wealthy, people that are more talented, people that are more fortunate. By whatever means, society will stratify. That, you can't do a thing about that. But to value people based on their place in that strata, that is not a kingdom perspective. All this points back, of course, to the... um, Discussion the 12 were having about who is the most important. I'm in the top 12. That's not good enough for me. I want to be at the top. That's the flaw in our thinking. Jesus said and did so many things that valued people, attributed value to people. And here's the cool part. He didn't neglect the rich ones either. It's not like he valued those who came from the lower strata and you folks at the top, too bad for you. You're the losers now. No. Jesus attributed value to Nicodemus. There's an incredible story in the next chapter, Mark chapter 10, verse 17, of the rich young man that comes to Jesus and he says, Master, what do I have to do to inherit eternal wealth? And Jesus says, you know, the law, you have to keep it. And then he says, go sell everything you've got and follow me. And the young man went away sad. And there's a line in that story that's incredible. Jesus looked at him and loved him. 
Jesus loved the rich guy. Sometimes that's harder than loving the poor guy. Yeah, especially if we're not as rich as the rich guy. And Jesus certainly wasn't in terms of worldly wealth, but he loved him. It didn't matter where in the social strata people were, Jesus affirmed their value. That's a kingdom principle, and that's where it speaks to us. This is where it brings us into the discussion. The radically different value system that Jesus tried to pass to the disciples, took him a long time to get it, is a value system we need to get. A baseline, where we think from, how we make our decisions from. It cannot be, as the world would instruct us, to be based on what you can do for me or I can do for you. It cannot be a variable based on expectations, which is how we tend to see people. A kingdom value system, which is Jesus' value system, begins with each one made in the image of God. That's the baseline. When we see every person that we encounter as made in his image, when it recognizes the immortality of the human soul, which means, in practice, that where in the strata you see a person now may have absolutely no bearing at all of where they are in eternity. The poor widow that put the two little coins in the treasury that went, ding, ding. And Jesus said, wow. Her faith is, Jesus was amazed. I would suggest that to whatever, whatever way there may be any kind of stratification in eternity, she's going to be at the top. Even though she was at the very bottom in this world. Yeah, the immortality of the soul puts this whole matter in a whole new light. A kingdom value system for people sees that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory. Boom, we're actually pretty much all at the basement when it comes to righteousness. Knows that all people in, are equally in need of redemption. All people equally offered redemption. And our treatment of people must reflect that. And that's such a challenge because we operate in a world that doesn't work that way. We operate in a world that operates almost exclusively on what you can do for me. That's our challenge. Not to adopt the value system of the world, which is constantly reinforced in this world, and adopt the value system that reflects the kingdom. And to the end that we do that, here's the really good part. To the end that we do that, to the end that we can embrace that value system of other human beings based on who they are, made in the image of God, equally in need of salvation, redemption as me, but equally redeemable, if not already redeemed, as me, with the same hope of eternity, whether or not they've embraced it yet, when we see that equality and we begin to treat them that way, how many would express a frustration in your Christian walk when you try to say, oh, I just wish, I just wish I could express the love of Jesus, but I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't have the right words, right? We go through that whole thing of wondering how we can express the love of God for people. If we just start with a value system that sees everybody as equal, everybody as, as equal in terms of the respect they should be shown, the dignity that, that should be attributed to them, and the way they... If we just start with that, start treating people that way, we go a long ways in manifesting the kingdom of heaven. Because we can't do that without the kingdom of heaven, can we? Try it in your own strength. Mm, it won't work. 
But to the extent that we pursue him through his word, through prayer, asking the Holy Spirit to work through us, simply to manifest a value system that treats everyone equally the recipient of God's love and favor, that takes us a long ways towards manifesting his kingdom. Father, I thank you so much for your word, Lord. Because, Father, it's so easy to, um, to look at myself and say, knowing what I'm made of, the idea that I could somehow manifest the person and character of Jesus to the people around me seems like an almost impossible task. Uh, it's not in me. But I rejoice in the fact that as you dwell in me by your spirit, Lord, which is true of everyone that calls upon your name, to the extent you dwell in me, Father, to the extent that I allow you, Lord, to rework my value system to reflect your value system, to the extent I let your word change my value system, how I see people, that I can, it, it, to, the, to the extent, Father, that can, can just leak out of me in the way I speak to people on the street, the way I speak to strangers, the way I, the way I, I treat the person at the grocery store, checking out my groceries, Lord, to the extent that I can attribute value to that person in the same way your son would have, Father. Your kingdom can be established. Your kingdom can be uh, expressed and the character of Jesus manifest. We can't do it on our own, Father, but we're so glad that you can and do that work in us if only we let you, if only we invite you. Help us, we pray, to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.